Evan, you ask a question first, I need to think about it. What? Sorry, I, I, <laughs> you had it. So I feel like know what the premise is. You had it. Go for it. Just in general, like any yeah, any billable question. Any. All right, Dante, you go first. I need to think of it first. Dude, why do I feel like I have so many questions, and then someone asks if I have a question, I feel like I have no questions. I know it happens. Real. You're like, <clears throat> I feel like I have so many questions, but now I'm like. Nothing. I feel like I'm yeah, just an absolute... Because you, you don't have momentum. Okay. Yes, I do have some questions, but I also... I sent out a text message to a group of my friends, or all of them. but Because <laughs> uh, they don't believe in predestination, so I like oh. sent out a, te- a text asking for verses and questions they had oh, yeah. that they think proves free will. Oh, that's oh. bold. And... Actually, I'll just read you a text because I don't know how I said it. Okay, I said, Hi guys, I was wondering if you guys could give me Bible verses you have to support free will. I will be doing a, 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 um independent prayer and Bible reading, and I will have an open mind and let the Holy Spirit guide me. Also, give me any personal questions you have to question predestination so I can read into them and let the Bible guide guide me in that prior knowledge. Even if I think I have the answer, I will not be answering for a while so I can have sufficient time for the Holy Spirit to work in me through God's word things. So then they so sent me... Say. They didn't really ask any questions, but they sent me a bunch of Bible verses. Did you read them? I forgot to bring my notebook. No. Yeah, I read through most of them. Should we just go through them? Yeah. I'm kind of curious. I'm curious what the verses they gave give us the. Just give us a random one. Okay. A lot of them don't really make sense. But, all right, but the first one... Uh, Do your friends listen to this podcast? No. <laughs> okay. Not um, that it really matters, I guess, but... So the first one is... Wait, hold on, I gotta pull it up. Actually, yeah, hold on. Second Peter 3.9. Okay, hold mm-hmm. Yeah, Second Peter 3.9 says on. that God desires that everyone be saved. Oh, or not wishing, Wait, hold that, up. not wishing that any, not wishing that anyone would perish. Am I in the right one? Second Peter three nine. Yeah. Here. Oh yeah, I, I see. It's the second. Yeah, not wishing. He says it's a good one, showing that God wants everybody to come to repentance. I agree. He does. Uh, I feel like. I don't know. If I was in your shoes, I'd probably start by reading the context around it, and not just like plucking a verse out. I mean, I don't know. Isn't that kind of a good place to start? Yeah. yeah. Read it. <clears throat> um, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but it is, but is patient toward you, not wishing that you should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Okay. First question. <clears throat> you asked them to... Whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> is it... No, I was just, like, making sure it worked. Okay. First question. <laughs> like, don't be writing my questions down. No, I'm not, no, I was just making sure the pen. Um, first question is you you asked them to give you verses that express free will. Yeah. So how does this address free will? Yeah, that's what I was. Thinking. I think. Can I kind of answer it? Not mm-hmm. saying I believe this, but I think this is maybe the thought process. <laughs> I think in their minds is if God desires everyone to be saved. Sure. Everyone doesn't get saved. Therefore, 
we have free will. I think is kind of the logic. Yeah. Like obviously we know not everyone is saved. Yeah. Everyone agrees. Everyone right. agrees on that. Right. But, I've had a so I think that's why this verse is kind of connected. To yeah, I've had a conversation with this individual, and yeah, he's talking about like election, like how he thinks that God didn't predestine certain people to go to hell because. Why would he do that if he wants everybody? Why would he say he does that if he doesn't do it? That would be my question. Why what? Why would he say he does that if he doesn't do it? Why would he say what? Where does he say that he... Are you talking about... Let's back up since everyone's confused. I'm confused. Yeah. I... He... I showed him... Them, the verses that... A while ago, when we had a conversation that said, like... Yeah, the reference now, but that God about the elect. I mean, it literally says God has elected some for destruction, and oh, I forget what the words were. Mm-hmm. Vessels of destruction. Vessels of destruction. Vessels of mercy. Yep. Vessels and <clears throat> vessels of honorable use and vessels of dishonor. And um. And your friend said. Or what you summarized him as saying is why would uh, why would God uh, go against what he desires? No, why would God <clears throat> essentially um, but why would no, God wouldn't create someone just to destroy them. Alright, okay, yeah. Or why <laughs> would God create someone just to destroy them? And I said why would God say or you said god wouldn't do that and i said why would god say he does it and then not do it that's a better question so then i think the question is where does he say in romans 9 and that's yeah so first of all uh second peter 3 9 says not wishing so the lord not wishing that any should perish but that all should reach repentance. Do you say Romans 9? Mm-hmm. For Romans 9. Well, slow up on the Romans 9 thing. That's like a core text that we have to walk through. Yeah. We're not going to do that right now. Right. At least not at this I think second. We can do it today, but just... Better. If you want to take note of it, that's fine. I'm just... If you go there and start digging in, you're gonna we're gonna yeah. That's a rabbit hole, and that's not a hole. That's a rabbit. I think at some point when we're done with Ephesians, which probably will be a while, I think we should go to Romans because there's a lot of times we reference Romans. Yeah, so I think it might be. It's probably because I've book ever written. I've wanted to do like Bible study on Romans, but Romans is just full of full of tattoo ideas. (laughs) So tattoo ideas. Go to. Go to First Timothy two. Keep your finger in Second Peter three. Mm, I can't do that. Oh yeah. Just it's <laughs> not that hard to switch back. First Timothy two, Second Peter three. Is there a Bible here? What's this? I'll just use this. Is this an ESV? First Timothy. What? This is this is, a, is this is an ESV. HCSB. Holy Christian Study Bibles. I'll just, Holman. I'll, I'll just use this one. <laughs> okay. And Bro, Ezekiel thirty three eleven. 
I'm struggling. Oh, here we go. What was this? Okay, never mind. First Timothy. Yeah, I got two four. Second Peter three nine. And then Ezekiel. Ezekiel thirty three eleven. Where's Ezekiel? Yeah. Oh, I, I found it's right. It's right. The. Is it before Timothy or after Timothy? What? Ezekiel's in, Ezekiel. the, Old in the Old Testament. Testament. Oh, yeah, duh. It's before Daniel. Before Daniel? Mm-hmm. Before Daniel, after, after Jeremiah. Yes. Wait, Ezekiel what? 3311. This definitely proves, say. Huh? Never mind. Go to the table of contents. Yes, I had I flipped the whole thing. Alright, we're starting in Genesis. Thirty three. Take a Let's start in Genesis one one. And we'll we'll, we'll build our way up to Ezekiel thirty-three. <sighs> Alright. Charlie, read testing. Ezekiel thirty-three eleven. Um thirty-three eleven. Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? Okay, so what does that tell us about God? Um, that he, do, um, he, he has no pleasure in the death of wicked? Right. So what does it? What does he desire? Us to not be wicked. No. Um, well, yes, but what does it say? We... Turn from who turns. The the wicked. The wicked, the wicked turn, turn from, from his, from way. his okay. way. Okay, that's what God desires. Okay. First Timothy two four. Evan, read it. No, Dante, read it. You can read this second Peter. Who desires all people... Oh, I'm sorry, hold on back. Read verse 3 first, and then 4. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Okay. And then read Second Peter again. Thus the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Okay. So, <clears throat> Ezekiel 33.11 says, God takes no pleasure in the wicked, but he wants the wicked to turn from their ways and live. 1 Timothy 2.4 says, God desires all people to be saved and come to his truth. And 2 Peter 3 says that God does, uh, wishes that no one should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So all three of these verses are saying the same thing. God desires that everybody be saved. Yes. God does not desire the wicked to die in their wickedness. Mm-hmm. Okay. So without getting into all the texts that we've already covered over the last, I don't know, whatever, six months or whatever, mm-hmm. um, in terms of how to answer this um, with evidence, biblical evidence, that God does elect 
Romans 9 specifically, that God does elect those whom he loves and elects, or, or so to say, chooses the, those whom he does not love and destroys them intentionally according to his sovereign will. Plenty of biblical evidence for that. I'm not going to get into it now because we'll just off track from this question. So let's just, to stay on this question, I'm not going to defend mm-hmm. election at this second. So, we have this question before us from these three texts. These three texts, Ezekiel 33, 11, and there's another verse. There's more. Ezekiel says the same thing uh, again later, essentially, but... It's in the same context. It's in Ezekiel 34. Um, and uh, so you've got Ezekiel 33, 1 Timothy 2, and 2 Peter 3, which are the three primary verses that tell us that God desires everyone to be saved, which sounds like it disagrees with election which is your friend's point right Mm -hmm. okay so are these verses true yes Yes. Mm -hmm. does god desire that everybody's saved yes Yes. does god desire that the wicked turn from their ways and be saved yes okay does god elect whom he saves Yes. yes okay so what's the problem then then it, it appears that he's going against his desire. Or it, that it, God isn't... Because, um, yeah, like, no. you... I'm just thinking logically, like, based on this, you would think that if he desires everyone to be saved, then everybody would be saved. But obviously that's not true. Right, and so... That seems logical and reasonable. If God desires everyone to be saved, then everyone would be saved. And so since God is... God is if, God. If, if God desires everyone to be saved, and God is the one who elects who's saved, then everyone would be saved. So That's if God desires everyone to be saved and God doesn't elect, then that would explain why people aren't saved. Because God desires that they be saved, which means he must not be electing them. Because some are not saved. Yeah. So you said it really well, Charlie. It seems like God is going against his desire. That's right? That's what essentially, said. yeah. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Okay. What have I taught you about God's desire? And what is something else in relation to God's desire? Like that answers this. His two wills. His two wills. All right. <clears throat> Dante decides to... Um, talk back to his mom and give her attitude and he gets feisty and snippety with her snippety. and uh, <clears throat> I have to discipline Dante now because I'm his dad right mm-hmm. Hebrews 12 got a discipline and let's say the discipline I give Dante is I'm going to take his phone away um, you know what, let me use a different example because this one makes more sense. Um, it, this one comes with less, uh, whatever, caveats or hypotheticals. Okay, <clears throat> let's say I've got a four-year-old, okay? Mm-hmm. And my four-year-old disobeys me. And my form of discipline is spanking. Mm-hmm. Okay. And my 
going to spank my child? Yes. Yes. Oh, I think Do I desire to spank my child? No. Do I want to spank my child? No. Okay, so I've got a will in me. There's a will that says, I don't want to do this, right? I'm going to call that will my will of desire, mm-hmm. right? Am I going to do it anyways? Mm-hmm. Yes. If I'm a good dad, I will. Is God a good father? Yes. Yes. So is he going to do, is he going to discipline us? Yes. 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 Does he desire, does he want to put us in pain and discipline us? No. No. But must he? Yes. Yes. So if I'm going to spank my four-year-old for disobeying me, I don't want to spank them because this is why parents say this hurts me more than it hurts you because we don't want to, but we have to, right? And so we've got two wills at work in a parent. You've got your a parent with their quote-unquote sovereign will. Now, humans aren't sovereign like God is sovereign, so it's not really a sovereign will. But a, a father's, a human father, his will uh, for what his family is going to do is his sovereign will for his family. He's not sovereign over all of creation, but he's sovereign over his family, right? And so... A father is going to enact his sovereign will over his will of desire. He does not want to or desire to spank his child, but he has to for the good of the child and for the benefit of the family. For his overall, for the father's overall vision and purpose for his family, he has to discipline his child, even though he doesn't want to. That father has two wills at work. One is an expression of what he wants, and another is an expression of what he must do in order to accomplish something bigger, which means his will of desire is always going to submit underneath his sovereign will. And the same is true of God, and we see it all throughout Scripture, that God has a will that is unbreakable, unchangeable, and undeniable by human will or purpose, and he has another will that is an expression of what he desires and commands and expects of us, and that is something that we can impact and affect. So we've got his will of desire which are expressed in his commands. He has a will of command, things like don't get drunk, don't commit sexual immorality. If you do those things, it's sin. Does God want you to do them? No. No. There's another command in Scripture. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. That's a command. Does God want you to believe it? Yes. Yes. Does he want everyone to believe it? Yes. Yes. Does he ordain... In his sovereign will, that everyone believe it. No. 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 Why? Because his sovereign will is above his will of command? Yeah. Yeah. And Exactly. That's what I just told you, so you're right on. So where... Unless you had something else to say. I always do. Go ahead. Um, So you just explained that... Mm -hmm. Would there be, like, a biblical reference to yes. this? Yeah. That, like, if... Because someone who supports free will probably isn't maybe just going to take your word for it just because you said that, you know? Right. So, First Peter okay. 2.
So you don't have, what we don't have in scripture is explicit statements that tell us things like, God has two wills. Like, yeah. it doesn't say it like that. Yeah. Instead, it expresses what God does and what God desires. So you've got what God does, which is his sovereign will, and what God desires, which is his moral will. Okay? And we see those two wills expressed at different times. Because there's a will that cannot be stopped or changed. And then there's a will that can be impacted by humans. So First Peter 2, verse um, 13 I want you to tell me what will of God's is this. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom to cover up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Will this be will of desire? Mm -hmm. Because obviously... Or will of, what do we call it? Oh, command. Same thing. Yes. So, because obviously not everyone lives up to this, and if it was a sovereign will, then everyone Everyone would. would. Yeah. Okay. So that's an expression of his will of desire. Very clearly. Has anyone ever sinned against any of those commands? All the time. Yeah. Yeah. Has everybody honored everyone always throughout all of history? No. Has everyone loved the brotherhood all the time always perfectly? No. Have all Christians, for this is the will of God, have all Christians, by doing good, put to silence the ignorance of foolish people? Has every Christian always done that perfectly? No. So plenty of Christians have not followed God's will of command here. But then there's a will that is sovereign and unstoppable and impenetrable and humans have no power to to uh, change it. Let's back up to verse 4. As you come to him, a living, this Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to god through jesus christ for it stands in scripture now before i go on let me just clarify he's making a a, he's creating clarity between the the gentiles and the jews right we talked about this a few weeks ago in ephesians 2 um, he's making the distinction between the Gentiles and the Jews. And he says, in, in a reference to Zion here is a reference to Israel. Okay, And what we know is that God kept Israel from believing so that the Gentiles could be saved. Right? We talked about that in Ephesians 2. So he says in verse 6, For it stands in scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Who's the stone? Um, Jesus. Jesus. Okay. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, stop. Look at me. Don't look at the text. Look at me. Charlie, stop reading the text. (laughs) I don't want you to get your answer too soon. So he says in verse seven, so the honor is for for you who believe, but for those who do not believe. So stop. We've got two people. 
those who believe and those who don't believe. Mm-hmm. Yep. What's the difference? What would your friends say is the difference between those who believe and those who don't believe? Mm, those who believe chose. Chose. Or had free will to choose. Had free will to choose. Yeah. And those who don't believe chose the opposite. Those who do believe chose Jesus, right? Yeah. Yes. Well, let's see what the Bible says. To, so the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stumbling and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Hold up. So the stone, verse 7, is Jesus. The stone that the builders, who are the builders, Israel, rejected has become the cornerstone. Jesus is the stone. Israel rejected him. And in Israel's rejection, Jesus has become the cornerstone to build the church. Church. Okay. And verse 8 a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And by stone of stumbling, a rock of offense, meaning people, instead of accepting Jesus, trip over Jesus, if that makes sense. And when I say trip over Jesus, listen to what he says in Acts 13. This is an awesome text. I'm just being careful because I don't want to read too much. Uh, Hold on a second. Okay. Oh, it's so much text. I just don't want to go through it all. Um, Can you summarize? It says that those who fall on the rock will be shattered but those whom the rock falls upon will be crushed so what is jesus in first peter 2 the stone. the stone a stone and he's a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense meaning because they rejected him instead of him becoming their cornerstone and they can build upon him instead he's a stumbling block for their for them to believe so Jesus himself becomes the means by which they don't believe the gospel. Why? They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. So they, Jesus is a stumbling block to them because that's what God has ordained according to his sovereign will. So, and I say that the, uh, he's the, when they fall upon him, when they fall upon him, they shatter so anyone who falls upon the, the stone shatters, and if the stone falls upon them, they're crushed. Which one's worse, crushed or shattered? Crushed. Crushed. Okay, so if Jesus lands upon you, meaning judgment, 
you're crushed eternally. If you land upon Jesus, you fall upon Jesus, he shatters you. What does that mean? He breaks you. Yeah. He, he disciplines you. He changes you. He tears you to pieces and builds you back up, right? In Ephesians uh, 5, right? That... So the difference is you can fall upon Christ and you'll shatter. You won't die, but you'll shatter and then he'll restore you and redeem you. But if he falls upon you, you're crushed and dead. And that's the same idea here that's happening to them. Instead of him becoming a stone that people can live on, he becomes a stone that people die from. And that's Peter's point. And why do these people get crushed by Jesus? Because God destined to do that. Well, that's not what it means by destined, Mark, verse 9. But you, in opposite, opposite of those who are destined to die, you are a what? Chosen race. Chosen race, which makes those who are destined to disobey what? Mm. Not chosen. So, but you means in oppose. So, there's this group who's destined to stumble. And then he says, but you, showing us a contrast between those who stumble and those who are the chosen race. So what's the contrast? One's chosen, and the contrast is, that means those who stumble are not chosen. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who, what? Called you out of darkness and into marvelous light. You were once, uh, you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. <laughs> you didn't gain mercy, you received it. It was given to you as a gift. And then he goes on and we get to the text I just read in verse 13 through 17, which is God showing his moral will. This is the will of God. So... 1 Peter 2, 8, saying that they're destined to stumble. And verse 9, that they, we are a chosen race. That's God's will. It doesn't say this is God's will. It just shows us that this is what God says. It is therefore his will, period. Yeah. It's not like, hey, maybe it's, th-. Peter's not like, maybe it's this, maybe it's not. We'll never know. He doesn't say that. He tells us that this is what God's doing. And he shows us from the Old Testament, this is what God has been doing for centuries. And then we get words in verse 15, this is the will of God. And then he shows us a command. Those are two things. The, the sovereign will of God expressed in verse 8 and verse 9 is not stoppable. It's not changeable by anybody. Why do they stumble? They're destined to. No one can prevent that from happening. But when he says, here's the will of God obey my commands, that's something we can or can't do. Do you see the distinctions? Yeah. I feel like that is the most comforting thing to hear, but it's also like a scary thing to hear at the same time. Yeah. It's a good point. Like, as Christians, it's like, I should have no reason to doubt or like fall into the trap, you know, of kind of like my, my own doing will save me. Like, okay, God has chosen me, you know, but at the same time, the people around you, like, you know, that's kind of terrifying, <laughs> but it should be terrifying in a sense because Hebrews 10 31 says, 
um, after explaining some of what you're just talking about, Charlie, he says, if we go on in verse 20, uh, Hebrews 10, 26, if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of truth, there is no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. And then verse 31, he says, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So what you're expressing, Charlie, is what Christians and everybody should recognize when they look at the sovereign God who will do whatever he wants to do and a God who also commands us to do what he expects from us to do. Okay, so we should look at that God and be terrified. Whenever you see an Old Testament prophet in the presence of God, are they like, hey, what's up, God? Got coffee here? Donuts? Is your secretary in? Can we just chill? Want to play some video games? And what is their attitude when they see God face to face? Or when they see the Lord, I should say. What's their attitude? Terrified. Yeah. They're terrified when they see angels. How much more terrified are they when they see the God? Was it Moses was like, he had to take his sandals off because he's like, I'm not worthy to be stepping on. Well, God told him to take his sandals off because he said the ground you're standing on is holy ground. And it's holy because God's there. Then he went up on the mountain and Moses said, show me your face. And God was like, or he said, show me your glory. And God said, you can't see my, you can't see me. No one can see my face and live. So he showed Moses, he showed Moses the backside of himself as he was passing by. And when Moses looked, when Moses looked at the backs, the back of God instead of the face of God. God has a less glorious side. He just, he just couldn't take the fullness of God's glory is what it really, what it really means. And so when Moses saw a fraction of God's glory, he went down from the mountain, and what did he have to do to what did Moses have to do to his face? Cover it up. Why? Too bright. Why was his face bright? Because he saw God's backside. Because he saw <laughs> he saw <laughs> he saw the <laughs> what? <laughs> he saw a fraction of God's glory, and it made Moses's face shine so brightly. That's how powerful God's glory is. That even people couldn't even look at Moses' face because it was so bright. So Moses had to veil his face because he looked at God. That's mm. lit. And so any you look at Isaiah 6. Literally. Literally, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's lit lit. Mm. Literally lit. All right. So when, Moses, when Isaiah in Isaiah 6 enters the, the presence of God, he falls on his face and says, Woe is me. For I am unclean and I am a people of unclean lips and what am I doing here? Right? And so it is a good thing for us to be fearful of God when we recognize how supreme and grand he is. So when so we've got these we've got we've got an answer to your friends verses, right? So if any of them use first Timothy two four, Ezekiel thirty three eleven, or second Peter three nine, with the same answer. Your problem is their their concern is that if God desires everyone to be saved and God elects whom he's going to save and elects whom he's not going to save, then he can't also desire that everyone be saved. And I would say that's not true because God has two wills, a will of desire, which is an expression of what he wants, and a sovereign will, which is an expression of what he ordains. 
And why would his sovereign will always trump his moral will? What is the ultimate purpose of his sovereign will? For glory. His glory. So his sovereign will is God orchestrating all of reality in such a way that it ensures that he gets his glory. Which has nothing to do with his desire for us being saved because... I don't know, maybe I'm confusing myself. All right, well, let me, let me just put it to you like this. I know where you're kind of, I think I feel like, I, I feel like I know where you're going with this. Yeah. Does God get glory when we obey his moral will? His will of desire? Yes. 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 Does God get glory when we don't obey his moral will? Yes. Yes. And that's the key. He does get glory. And not in the same way. Like, we're commanded in scripture to glorify God. And what the authors mean when they say, when Paul tells us to glorify God, you know, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. He's talking about obey God's commands and therefore glorify him. Scripture doesn't tell us explicitly, hey, it doesn't matter if you obey God's commands or not. He'll get his glory no matter what. So do whatever you want. Scripture doesn't say that. But what we do know is that God does ordain that certain people do evil things and that by them doing evil things... God will get glory. Do you want to see where that happens? Yeah. Sure. In yes. scripture? Yes. First Peter 3.17. Bro, First Peter is loaded. It's <laughs> <Yeah>. loaded. <laughs> like once a week is not enough. <laughs> right? That's so much. Okay. Dante, read First Peter 3.17 nice and loud. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Okay. So, it is better to what? It is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Okay. Hold on a second. I'm doing some Bible flipping here. Okay. Okay. For it is better to suffer for doing good. What does that mean? What does that tell us about suffering? That you can suffer for doing good. You can suffer for doing good. Mm-hmm. Um, how else can we suffer? For doing evil. For doing evil. So let's take the, the middle part of the... Stop. Let's take the middle, the little parenthetical statement, if that should be God's will. Let's take that out for a second. And just read it as it is. For it is better to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Meaning you can suffer for doing good or you can suffer for doing evil. If you suffer for doing good, it's better. What, is he, what, what does this verse say about God's will? That we will do both. Or, or what do you, I don't maybe not should Wait, ask it again. Please. <laughs> what? What is what is going on if we suffer for doing good? It's God's will. It's God's will. Okay. We're glorifying him? Is that what you're trying to get at? No. I mean, it is, ultimately. Yeah, I mean, that's the ultimate big point, yes. What I'm getting at is it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will. Meaning, it would be God's will if you suffer when you do a good thing. 
right? Mm-hmm. Yes. And that would be better than if you suffered because you did an evil thing, right? Mm-hmm. But what we now know is that you doing good would be God's will, and you suffering for that good would be God's will. Mm-hmm. So what? how do you get from doing good to suffering? What has to happen between you doing good and your suffering for that good? What has to happen? God. <laughs> I'll give you a hint. I don't, I don't understand. I'll give you a hint. It's not something God's doing. It's something people are doing. You do good and then you suffer. What happened? What happened from your good to your suffering? What happened in between those two things? People doing bad? People doing bad, yes. Somebody is doing an evil to you. Oh. Oh, that's why you're suffering. That's why you're suffering. Well, uh, yeah. The only way that you can suffer for doing good is if someone imposes a suffering upon you. Like, if you... Give, yeah, you're coming up with an example. Like if you're with a group of friends and they want to do something and you, like they want to, I don't know, let's say they're making fun of someone, but then you choose to do the right thing and not make fun of them, but then they make fun of you for not making fun of them. Yeah. Yeah. Now you, you follow? Yeah. yeah. So yeah. You're, you're suffering for doing You did good. Good by, yeah. Okay. You did good and now you're suffering because they did an evil response to your good. Yes. Because they hate your good. Yes. Okay. Another example you go to work, your boss says, I need you to fudge these numbers for me. And you say, I refuse to fudge those numbers because that's not right. And you get fired. Mm-hmm. You did good. Your boss did evil. And now you're suffering. The only way to suffer for doing good is if there's an evil done for you. So the evil that's done to you is what, according to verse 17? God's will. God's will. Mm. That somebody did an evil. God ordains Evil. Don't believe me? Ezekiel 6.10. Also, doesn't, didn't we read in I, about... Yeah, we'll, we'll do that too. And they shall know that I am the Lord. I have not said in vain that I would do this evil to them. I have not said in vain that I would do this evil to them. Meaning, I will do this evil to them. When I say it, I will do it. Lamentations 3.38. But how does that work? Because God can't sin or do evil. Correct. But let's just look at the text first and then I'll answer that. Okay. Okay. Lamentations 3.38. Uh, let me back up actually. Lamentations 3.31. For the Lord will not cast off forever, but though he cause grief... So he's causing the grief. He will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does not willingly affect or grieve the children of men. But isn't this telling us that he does grieve and afflict the children of men? Yes. Isn't that what he just told us? Mm -hmm. Though he cause grief, he does not willingly cause grief. What does that tell us? Well, those are his two wills. His two wills. He's got a sovereign will that's going to cause grief, but he doesn't desire or willingly want to. Go a few verses down. Verse 38. Is it not from the mouth of the Most High, that's God, that good and bad come? How do you argue with these verses? Clearly, God's the one creating the problems. And then Job, which was the reference you brought up, he says... 
or should we receive bad, uh, good from God and not evil? And then, let me go to it. Oops, wrong direction. Job 2. Shall, so after Job goes through all the pain, he goes, you speak as a foolish man, a foolish woman sh would speak. He says, shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? That's a rhetorical question. Job's wife is just complaining, curse God and die. And Job goes, <laughs> literally, quote, curse God and die. And then that's verse nine, verse 10. Job says, shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? What Job is rhetorically asking his wife is, why you would be happy with God if he gave us good, but now he's giving us evil and you're not happy with him because God is the one delivering the evil. Who did the evil against Job? Satan. Satan. And who does Job credit for the evil? God. God. Well, you could say, well, Job just doesn't understand. Job doesn't know what he's talking about. Maybe Job's wrong. We'll look at the end of the verse. In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. So if he didn't, if he was... So Job's he right. Yeah. So he didn't lie. He didn't lie, and he didn't sin. If he said something untrue about God, whether he meant it or not, sin. it's sin. And it says he did not sin with his lips. No. Meaning Job is recognizing what all the other Bible authors recognize, which is even evil comes from God. But who performed the evil? Satan. 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 So to answer your question from earlier, how can God cause evil if he himself can do no wrong and cannot sin and cannot do evil himself? Well, he sovereignly ordains evil agents to perform evil yeah so like in this case satan in this case satan in the case of your the the example you gave us your friends making fun of you the example i gave the boss who fires you but even like the thought maybe god doesn't think like humans so it's different like the thought to ordain i don't know if god has thoughts to ordain things i guess they just happen but he's even that still evil, even if he's not doing them directly. Well, he's not performing an evil. Yeah. Not only that, but okay. So I know you're not doing this intentionally, but I'm gonna I'm gonna address you. In, I'm just kind of bringing up yeah questions. But like, that's a question that people often ask, and you're trying to discover truth. So I, I, your motivation is great, and not knocking that down. But a lot of people ask that question as an argument against it. Well, you know, isn't God just really, he's responsible ultimately for it then, isn't he? So it's just on him. He's doing evil, but he's not doing evil. He's ordaining evil, but he's not doing it. And my rebuttal is you can ask that question all you want, but all you're doing in asking that question after reading those verses is you're trying to find a way to not, you're trying to find a way for God to not be what scripture says he is because it doesn't fit the comfort of your own thoughts. Right? Right. I don't think that's what you're trying to do, but that's what people are trying to do. They, they want, they grew up with God is this way and he can be no other way. And therefore, that's all there is to it. So if anyone tells me otherwise, like God is the one who's causing evil, even though he himself is not performing evil, they say, well, that can't be. Well, fine. You can say that can't be, but you have to, con you have to confront scripture. Look at the text we just read. I didn't make those up. I'm reading the Bible. Yeah, right. Like it says in the Bible, God can do no evil, but then it also says that 
Job is not saying it and saying this, so I mean. Yeah, look at this. The Bible I'll give you another answer. example. The Bible tells you. I mean, Go. Yeah, exactly. So, like, you have to you face have to. scripture, right? Yeah, right. Um, oh, boy. Uh, First Chronicles? Hold on a second. That's why I don't think you should come to conclusions and then read scripture that you think like affirms that I think you should read the Bible and then come to conclusions. Yeah, what you just said is one of the wisest things ever said. And most people don't think that way. And I feel you... like people think that way in honestly every aspect, not even just in the Bible. Yeah. Yes. Like so it's called thing. bias confirmation? Yeah. You're trying Where to confirm find... your, or your presupposition. Well, it's kind of like... Yeah, you ask your friends to find verses that support that. Like, if you just read those verses on their own, I could see why someone maybe has that thought. But right. then, it's and like, this, you, have to, you have to take everything in context and read everything and see as it. And this isn't to shame or anything like that on my friends, but the reality is, most likely, they didn't have all these verses they give me written down. Most likely, they Googled, like, Best verses friend. that support free will. Right. And then they just gave me those and right. read that section, and they're like, "Yep, that make that's a good one." Yeah. Send. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm I'm not saying I've never done that. I've definitely done that, but well, it's it's a way to get it. a short answer. Yeah. Just usually, yeah. Usually, if I know the person, I just like think like, how often do they read the Bible? Right. And how, like, I mean, like, obviously we sin a lot, but how obvious and bad is their sin yeah like what is are they fruitful are they a growing fruitful christian or are they not at all a growing fruitful christian and if they're not i can be pretty confident they're not in the word which means they probably don't have like a solid theological basis to make these claims yeah that's really what you're saying right and that's not that sounds judgmental it's not judgmental it's called discernment and we're commanded to have discernment in those regards I think also you got to see, like, how people are going about discussing this. Like, if they're, like, let's say someone's a new believer and they have this, like, this conclusion of free will. Um, But they also have, they're wanting to learn and grow and they're just, they haven't read a lot of the Bible, but, like, they're open. Yeah. Like, okay, like, okay, like, I don't, to me, I don't see anything wrong with that in the sense of, like, okay, they're learning, they're growing, they're, you know. But, like, if someone someone's like oh like you have to believe this you go to you know if you don't believe this way you're going to hell or kind of like that kind of that you know position i don't know i think there's yeah, definitely you kind of have intentions yeah because like even i'm thinking in my own life like probably it until really recently i would have said like Oh, yeah, I, I think we have free will. I wouldn't have been able to, like, have an argument or, like, oh, I think this because all these verses that kind of just came to that conclusion, like, oh, we can probably lose our salvation. But that was coming from I didn't read my Bible a whole lot. I didn't have these types of conversations. So, but then once I started reading the Bible and, you, you know, you started sharing and other people started sharing, it's like, oh, wait a minute, I think I was kind of wrong in that. Yeah, but to I, me, I was like, yeah. I don't, obviously I was sinful in the fact that I wasn't reading the Bible. That's ultimately why I didn't know. Right. So. Yeah, like, yes, there are like certain verses that 
could be aspects that support free will just by reading that one verse, but then after you read more and discover more and then, yeah, just use yeah. the Holy Spirit to discern. I guarantee you one of those verses is a Josh that your friends gave you is a Joshua verse. Is one of them a Joshua verse? The verse that says, choose this day whom you will serve. Which is completely ripped from its context and its meaning to support a doctrine that it's not teaching at all. So what you described earlier, Charlie, you said people, the difference between people, you know, reading the scripture and letting it tell us what we're to believe. Instead of coming with a conclusion, where can I... So we would call those presuppositions. Yeah. Coming... Is it in there? Yeah, Joshua twenty four fifteen. Yeah, so, so presuppositions. People bring their presuppositions to the Bible. The, the things that they already believe. Their conclusions, as you said. Yeah. Okay. So to bring your conclusion or your presupposition to the Bible and be like, all right, I have to, I have to find where the Bible confirms what I believe. Or I'm going to go into the Bible and let it inform me what I should believe. You see the difference. Obviously, you brought it up. Going to the Bible and letting it inform what you believe is a process that we call exegesis. It's a Latin word. And the opposite of that, where you're bringing your presuppositions to the text and let, trying to make the Bible defend what you already believe, is called eisegesis, which is sin. Because you're trying to make the Bible defend your belief instead of letting the Bible itself create your belief. So I'll give you another example. Yeah. Okay. I'll give you another example. Listen to this. Mm. So you know how like 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, 2 Kings, 1 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles, a lot of those stories are the same stories repeated in a different book. Like throughout Kings, if you read 1 and 2 Kings, you'll read, it'll talk about a king. Uh, I'll give you an example here, I guess. It'll talk about a king and it'll say... Um, oh, trying to find an example... I can't find an example right off the bat, but it's in here several times. In uh, 1 Kings, just trying to find one example of it. Um, I don't know the reference, but it's in here, I promise you. And it's in here more than once. Where it'll describe a king, and then it'll say of the king... The rest of this king's works, are they not described in the Chronicles? Yes. I, right? Yeah. Okay. So mm-hmm. what we know in 1st, 2nd Samuel, 1st, 2nd Kings, 1st, 2nd Chronicles, a lot of those stories are overlapping or they're retelling us the same story. We have, look at the light, look at the light, look at the light, stare into it. Oh, what does that do? It makes you sneeze. No, I'm not feeling it. <laughs> you went away. Does that actually help? Mm-hmm. Works for me. Why? Okay. Rose seeing the light. <laughs> it exercises your demons. You know, that's why they say bless you. Because they used to believe that when you sneeze, you're letting a demon out of you. Right. So they say bless, God bless you. Huh. Are we going to say that? Obviously, that's not true. <laughs> so, okay. So look at... So I need to sneeze more. Or you can just listen, so you don't have to like flip to it. First Chronicles 21. Verse 1, then Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. Okay? 
So David said to Joab and the commanders of the army, go, number Israel, and he numbered them. Okay? Okay. So who incited David to number Israel? Satan. 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 Okay. Second Samuel 24, verse 1. Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. This is the same story being told a different by a different author. The anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel because David numbered the people. So if Satan is inciting David to number the people, do you think that's what God wants him to do? You think that God wants David to number no. Israel? No. If Satan's inciting you to do something, do you think that that's something God wants you to do? Probably not. Probably not. Okay. So David does it. Is that a sin? Yes. 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 So David numbering the people is a sin. Yes. And Satan incited him to do it. Okay. Second Samuel 24, 1. Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel and he, who's he? I'll read it again. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them. Saying, who's saying this? God. The Lord. The Lord. The Lord. Go, number Israel and Judah. So listen to this verse. God's angry at Israel... And he incites David to do something he shouldn't do. And who is the instrument of evil that God used? Satan. Right. I, is that the same story? Yep. Sure. I'm certain. <laughs> Are you sure? That's why I had to confirm the concept of repeated stories. So... I'll give you another example. Bruh. This is one of my favorite because bruh. I love this story. <laughs> it's just with the bruh. I love this story. Listen to this. Okay. In Habakkuk, the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. Oh, Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed. Justice never goes forth for the wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. That's Habakkuk's complaint. Let me summarize that for you. Historically contextualizes for you. Habakkuk is upset because Israel is super wicked. And he goes to God and says, God, how long are you just going to sit there and watch your people do nothing but evil? Justice is perverted. The law is paralyzed. Destruction and violence are everywhere. Their iniquity is profound. And you idly look at their wrong. That's a pretty heavy complaint to say to the Lord, why are you doing nothing about the evil of your people? Listen to God's answer. Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. Which is a great statement because how many times do you tell people about the sovereignty of God and they still don't believe it, even when they're told. For behold... 
I am raising up the Chaldeans. That's the Babylonians. So what is God doing? Raising up. Raising up. Are they raising themselves up? No. Is somebody else raising them up? God. Is Satan raising them up? No. God's raising them up. And how is God raising them up? Do you know? You shouldn't know yet because I haven't told you. Are they a good people or a bad people? Is God raising them up good or raising them up bad? Bad. Bad. That bitter and hasty nation who marched through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves, meaning they have no justice and they have no dignity. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men. He calls them guilty men whose own might is their God. Are these godly people? No. They're guilty, they're idolaters, and they're destroyers. They're pretty rough. Who raised them up? God. God. And where is he sending them? Hell. Hell. Nope. Oh. Where is he sending them? To Israel. To Israel. Habakkuk said, God, are you going to sit by and just do nothing about your... Israel's evil and wickedness. And God says, no, no, I'm doing something about it. I'm raising up this bitter and hasty nation called the Babylonians. And they're going to, like I said, their horses are swifter than leopards. And now they're going to come sweeping in and take you captive, all of Israel, for 70 years. So that's not the answer. For 70 years, they're going to be in Babylonian captivity. You guys know the verse in Jeremiah that says, for the Lord, for I'm the Lord, for the Lord... I, the Lord, know the plans I have for you, plans for oh, the future. Yeah. You know that like yeah, graduation yeah. verse? Yeah. Yeah. Do you know why he's saying that? Jeremiah is saying that to the people in Israel during their 70-year captivity with the Babylonians so when they're going, God, what is going on? Why are we in captivity? What happened to the promise? You took us out of the land that you promised us. You said that we were going to be a nation forever and a priesthood forever and live in our land forever. And you've taken us from it. And God says, stop. I know the plans I have for you. Plans for good. And in order for that good to be fulfilled, which is his glory, first you have to be in captivity for 70 years for your evil. So first of all, people rip that Jeremiah 29, 11 verse way out of context. It has nothing to do with you. It has everything to do with Israel in that century <laughs> facing Babylonian captivity. I mean, it's still true though, right? Yeah. He, he has plans for us. Yes. He ordained our plans. Yes. So couldn't you still apply that? You you certainly can apply it. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I just I'm just saying people rip it out of context. Okay. Often. Yeah. So there's nothing wrong with saying God knows the plans he has for me. Yeah. Yeah. Like and that's confirmed all over scripture. Yeah. It's not the only verse. Um and then listen to what Habakkuk says. Are you not from everlasting? Oh, Lord, my God, my Holy One, we shall not die. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. Listen to what Habakkuk is saying. 
Okay. Habakkuk. God, Israel's evil. Are you going to deal with their evil? God, yes, I'm going to send an even more evil nation to answer their evil. So I'm going to take their evil and I'm going to conquer their evil with an even greater evil. And Habakkuk goes, you who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors? So now he's accusing God of looking idly at the evil of the Babylonians that God himself has raised up. And you are silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he. Habakkuk's complaint is he's got a second complaint. God, Israel's evil, do something about it. God, okay, I'm going to send an even more evil nation to conquer the Israel's evil nation. And Habakkuk goes, you can't do that. You're God. You can't look at evil. You can't do evil. You can't look at wrong. You have pure eyes. You can't idly look by as traitors do evil. And you can't sit silent when the wicked people swallow up your righteous people. And what does God say to Habakkuk in chapter 2, verse 4? But the righteous shall live by his faith. So God told Habakkuk after his first complaint, God, Israel's evil. What are you going to do about it? God says, if I told you, you wouldn't believe it. So God tells him, and what does Habakkuk do? Doesn't believe it. So what is another word for belief? Faith. Faith. And what is God's answer to Habakkuk's second complaint? Well, God, you can't do evil. You can't, you can't raise up an evil nation to conquer your evil people. Well, the righteous will live by faith. You won't believe it if I tell it to you. And the only people who will believe it are those who have faith. And the only people who have faith are the righteous. Only the righteous can understand how I work. God, dude. It's kind of funny. He's like, he's like, you won't believe me if I tell you. He tells him anyways, and he doesn't believe it. And he doesn't believe it. <laughs> and then he's like, exactly my point. Now Habakkuk is, Habakkuk's the good guy here, okay? He's not, he doesn't be, you know. Yeah. yeah but he still, says at the end, I will rejoice. I will take joy in the Lord of my salvation. So like even in, even when he doesn't understand, he's still like, he still rejoices in God. And like, right? Even. Mm-hmm. Yes. He yes. doesn't understand what God's oh, yeah, doing. No. Even when he doesn't know what God's yeah. doing. His prayer at the end is so Christ, or well, God-centered. Um, and, and so I'm just trying to give you many examples. And there's many more examples of in scripture where you've got God performing, or it looks like God is performing an evil, but, but he's actually, and in this case, who's the evil agent that God isn't doing an evil, but there's an agent who's doing evil. Who is it in the Habakkuk story? The Cambodians. Are the Cambodians. <laughs> Wait. Chaldeans. The Chaldeans are the Babylonians. What are the Cambodians? Cambodia is, is a nation. In People oh. from South America? Is it in South America? Or Central, Central America. Central America. Um, uh, hopefully, no one from Central America listens to this. Be like, shout out to my Central American like, fellow. Why do you not know <laughs> What's up, Cambodians? Um, so, so I'm just, I just want. So, so we only got through one of those verses, and we'll go through more. But what you see yeah. is that <laughs> that's what all this is from. That one will probably this. I mean, more than likely, the other, some other ones that they sent though, like fall into the same basis of this verse well the only ones that would fall into the same basis would be well second peter 3 9 first timothy 4 2 what was and that joshua ezekiel 33 joshua about. 24 what does that one say choose this day whom you will serve 
They have an Ezekiel one, but it's not that. Yeah. Is it? Huh. Interesting. So, all right. That's the only one we're going to get through today because we got to go to the play. Yeah. But I'll say this. It's really, like, we still haven't answered this. Because even though we've answered with the Bible, right? It's not just like me trying to reason with you and give you a bunch of logical answers. Right, and even when I gave you a logical answer, what did Charlie say? Is there a Bible verse that says that? Which is the best question you can ask. And then what did we do? We discovered it all throughout Scripture. Okay, so we have this reality, this concept that even though God desires that everyone be saved, His will of His moral will or His will of command can never trump His sovereign will because His sovereign will is means that He is going to orchestrate all of reality to function in a particular way that ensures that he gets his greatest glory. Which includes people evil. perishing. It well, includes, people. includes people dying, going to hell. It includes evil. It has to include evil. If evil, if God is sovereign, because a lot big question is, if God is good, then how can he allow evil? He doesn't allow evil. He ordains evil. And he has to ordain evil because he has to ensure that evil reaches its maximum capacity, right? He has to ensure that evil is as heinous and terrible as possible. Meaning he has to ensure, and this is going to sound really terrifying to say, but just hang with me for a second. He has to ensure that people murder. He has to ensure that people rape. He has to ensure, ensure that children are massacred. You don't believe that? Read all of Joshua. What does God tell Israel? Go into AI, kill every man, woman, and child. Mur- not murder. It's not murder because they're obeying God. They're killing. Murder and killing are different. They're not murdering. They're killing. Everybody, babies, infants, toddlers, 15-year-olds, teenagers, boys, girls, men, women, pregnant women. Yeah, just Now, he's not telling them. He's not telling them to like rape them or anything. He's just saying, kill them. And then he goes, go to the next nation, kill them. Go to Jericho, kill them all. Okay? So God, of course, approves of killing at times. He does not, according to his will of command, approve of murder. Or, and he certainly does not approve of rape. But all his, yeah, just like, like his, his calling to kill, though, is justified. Right, so what's the difference between him justifying it for his glory with Israel in the, la- in, the nation, in the land of Canaan and him justifying it to ensure his glory when it happens in the streets of Chicago? What's the difference? He's doing it for the same reason. They're both justified because God's getting glory. A lot of people view it differently. Yeah, they do view it differently because they bring God down to the human standard of what's good and what's not what God can and can't do. And so my point is that sin has to permeate every nook and cranny of all reality. Sin has to be as perverted and pervasive as possible. Has to be everywhere. Sin, all of creation, has to be affected by sin. Every human has to be totally depraved. Every piece of wood, like this table, has to be has to be submissive to decay. That's Romans 8. All of creation is groaning for the children of God to... His point is that 
even creation itself that is experiencing the problem of evil is can't wait for God to redeem his children once and for all, for the Lord to return. Okay, so everything in reality has to be permeated with sin. Every nook and cranny of your mind, every nook and cranny of reality has to be touched by sin. God has to ensure that sin is maximum worse in all of reality, which means rape has to be ordained. Murders have to be ordained. God morally hates it, despises it, and, and, and condemns people eternally for it. But he has to ordain it so that the pervasive wickedness that permeates all of reality is seen by God's children when they're redeemed by Jesus so that we would understand the severity and the magnitude of his mercy and his grace. That's Paul's argument in Romans 9. Why would God allow such terrible things? So that those who are redeemed would see just how great his mercy and his grace is. If God was like, well, I don't, I'm not going to ordain murder and rape or any of those terrible things, then sin's not as bad as it could be, which makes his mercy seem less. Yes. And, we, and the most common response is, well, God, God would never allow such a thing. Yeah, he would never allow such a thing. Well, first of all, if he is the God that you believe he is, he's sovereign over all, if you really believe that God is most powerful and all-knowing, then he does allow it because it does happen. So we what's just, the we, dis- just, we just don't want to admit that as humans. Right. So like what – if you're an Arminian, right? Like we're Calvinists and the Arminians reformed. oppose – we're reformed. I don't like nice. Calvinists. Me too. I don't like it. So we're reformed and Arminians argue against re- reformed theology. So if an Arminian says, well, God could never allow such terrible things. Well, if God is the all-powerful, all-knowing God that you say he is and those things do happen – and he's the only one who can stop it, and he knows about it, and he's then he is allowing it, and what which means he's the only one culpable or quote unquote guilty of allowing it. He's the only one who could stop it. Then that's no better. Like the Arminian's argument against the Reformed perspective here is that God won't allow such terrible things. Well. If, he's a, if he is an almighty, all-knowing, all-powerful God, then he is allowing those things. Because they happen. You haven't, because they happen. Every day. And he's the only time. one who could stop them. So he's allowing it. Whether he's, quote-unquote, causing it or he's, quote-unquote, allowing it, what's the difference? He's the only one who could prevent it, and he's not. Which means he's just as guilty for allowing it as he would be for causing it. What's the difference? Mm-hmm. One makes you feel better. That doesn't make me feel better that God's allowing something to happen. It makes me feel better that God's causing it because it means he's in control and now I don't have to worry. If God's allowing there's it. There's a purpose. Too. Right. There's, yes, there's a purpose in it. Because if he's just allowing it, like, oh, whatever, Satan, like, yeah. you do your thing. Well, not only that, but if he's allowing it, that means there's a force at work outside of God that he has to react to, which is not possible if he's sovereign. Yeah. It's the same argument for election. You know, well, God can't. God can't create people for hell. Well, he creates the people that, if you're saying that God just knows who's going to choose him, which is not what the Bible teaches. Yeah, I've heard from that viewpoint that God is all-knowing, but they don't believe he's all-powerful in the sense that he can stop it. Then he's, the Bible says he's all-powerful. I've literally, I've heard that, and I was like, 
Well, for it wasn't one of the. Yeah. It was. It was one of those times where I was like, I, I'm not gonna get into this, but like what? Like in my mind, I'm like, like their their example was, like, as a as a father, you know, I tell my I tell my child to uh, not touch the electric fence. You know, every day I'm telling him not. Well, one day I'm sitting on the porch and I see him walking over. <laughs> And they're like, my, you know, my knowledge tells me he's going to touch the fence, but I'm going to do nothing about it. It was the example or something like that. Which is a terrible example because the father is, the father has a son. And if he's making an equation between father and son and God, the father and people, God, the father, if he doesn't say anything to the son and he lets the son touch it, he's doing that for the son's good. Because if that son's going to die, then the father's going to stop him. But if the son's going to get shocked and he'll be okay, but he'll learn his lesson, then the father might let it go. Mm-hmm. It's, not a, it's not really a good analogy, yeah. right? So the same reality with election is that if God knows people are going to – if their argument is true that, that God just knows who's going to choose him, then why would he create the very person who he knows isn't going to choose him? He's creating them knowing they're going to hell. What's the difference? Yeah. The difference is that version of God is not in control. He's not sovereign over things. He isn't expressing his power the way he's supposed to express it. And he is a passive God with some force outside of him dictating how he should act, which makes him not God. That's insane. Simple. Yeah, I don't understand that. Anyways. I get worked up about this stuff. All right. Um, all right. We didn't. We didn't pray. We did not pray. Mm-hmm. And uh, God ordained that we didn't pray, but God desires that we did pray, which means we sinned against God. No. And now we're held responsible for our sin. Let's repent of not praying, and then. But pray. now He's giving us an opportunity to pray. Yes, because He's a good and gracious God. Literally everything we learned is right there. It's good. Boom. <sighs> Who wants to pray? <laughs> Who is God sovereignly ordained? I can pray. pray. Oh, Charlie. Wait. God ordained that I'm about to pray. I didn't choose. So, we, well, hold on. Before you go on, let me just say this. Let me just say this. Didn't you just experience what felt to you like a choice? I don't really know. I, I think like, you did. I don't. No, but you I'll, did. I, yes, I, I, yes. I was like, okay, I'll pray. I made that decision. You made that decision. But where did that thought come from? Exactly. We'll get to that. Because the question that still remains, even though we've answered some of it, the question that still remains is, well, then why does my experience feel free? Yeah. If I don't have a free will, then why does it feel like I'm free? Yeah. To dig into that. Yeah, we've. I think we've talked. We have. About we have talked about it. But it's still, we need to work it's through all confusing. these. Things. It's still confusing. Yeah. Well, not. I don't. Know. Yeah. Anyways, right, I guess God is ordaining me to pray, so <laughs> going to follow that. All right, dear Jesus, I thank you for today. Thank you for another opportunity that we can just uh, gather together and uh, read your word and work through questions and ultimately just um, grow in the knowledge of you, grow closer to you, and um, thank you for that. Um, just thank you that you even um, show your grace and mercy and give us that opportunity to even get to know you um and we'll always be thankful for that i uh, pray that the rest of our day would just be glorifying to you and your name we pray amen amen